Hello and welcome to Edelman Editions. Today we're joined by Mark McGinn, Edelman UK's Director of Purpose, who's going to be digging into supply chains and in particular how we reimagine them. This session is part of Edelman's Road to COP26 programme. Mark and a panel of experts are going to be talking about how we can build social justice alongside environmental justice within supply chains. Growing consumer awareness of the workers and the communities who produce our goods means supply chains are coming under scrutiny than ever before. But what does it take to manage a global supply chain? How can businesses create affordable goods while still creating a fair and equitable economy? Whose responsibility is it to ensure fair trade for all? And how can businesses ensure that citizens are engaged to make more informed choices? Mark, it's over to you to introduce the panel and today's discussion. So today we've got with us Katie Burgess, who's the Commercial Director at Fair Trade to help us explain. And Katie's got wonderful experience that means that she really is going to bring the voice of the workers and the producers and the front line of that of that supply chain through. We also have Lindsay Block with us, who has also spent a lot of time on the front line with those workers as well. Um, Lindsay's a senior member of the ethical trade team at Primark, and she's heading up the partnerships and capacity building to support improved worker welfare and working conditions across Primark supply chain. And that's mainly focused in South and Southeast Asia. So I'm just going to open up, first of all, with, um, if it's okay to answer you, Lindsay, and just ask, you know, what are supply chains and how do they work when you're within a company? It's an important thing, I think. When I when I think when I started working for Primark, I'd never been into a factory before. I had absolutely no idea about supply chains. So the main thing is to understand is that brands such as Primark do not own factories. So we do not own any of the sites um, that help to produce our products. Um, and that is true of pretty much all brands on the high street. And that is why, why and how we end up sharing factories. So we'll go into a factory and we'll find they're doing a line for us or two lines for us. So factories are like sewing lines. So a T-shirt will be made in one line. You might have the same T-shirt, another line, and then you might have like jogging pants down the next line, et cetera. So we don't own our factories. And therefore, when we talk about our workers in our supply chain, it's quite important because we don't employ those workers. They're employed by the site. And there's obviously a lot, there's lots of processes there, there's lots of layers there, and there's lots of individuals and companies along the way you can see. How do you manage that complexity? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So we have, our contracts are with suppliers. So the suppliers are kind of the intermediaries, if you like, the big kind of buying houses. We'll often work with a supplier that will have several factories. Suppliers might own factories, they might have joint ventures in factories, or they might be contracting factories themselves. Sometimes we work directly with a factory, but quite often we have this intermediary supply and it's them. So we sign like one contract, if you like, one purchase order. And then the responsibility for kind of human rights, due diligence and decent work kind of cascades through the supply chain. Um, now, we're slowly changing a little bit and some other brands do quite differently um, in terms of nominating some of the lower tiered processing so nominating mills which means kind of like hand picking a little bit more and saying to factories the this is where you should get your fabric from um but that happens to varying degrees but that's also the important point here is around leverage yeah. so we will have less leverage as we go down the supply chain towards the raw material and yeah. that has a real impact again in how we can kind of um implement a program around due, uh, human rights due diligence. Okay, great. Well, that leads nicely on to Katie. So maybe, Katie, you could explain what it feels like to be on the supply chain at the other end. So 
that, that, that distant end that Lindsay's talking about, what's it like to be a key worker? Um, and how do they feel those relationships? As Lindsay was saying, you know, that there are lots of intermediaries that, that passes through to before they get to those key workers. Yeah, I thought I'd share with you um, a story which I quite often share in these situations. Um, when I've been lucky enough, as you said, to, to travel to, to meet some of these farmers, um, I've been quite a few times to West, to West Africa, which is where the majority of, of cocoa is, is grown. And um, ahead of a trip, we would we would always ask, you know, is is there anything that the farmers would like to hear from us uh, in 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 Western society or in consuming societies? And the response is always the same. It's bring us the product. We have no idea where our cocoa bean ends up. Um, so I have had many a, a trip um, to Ghana and the Ivory Coast of carrying a suitcase full of chocolate. <laughs> Um, to, sh to show to those farmers that this is this is where your cocoa ends up because quite frankly they they grow the cocoa beans they ferment them quite often and then a, a lorry comes up and takes the beans and then they never see them again they, they don't know what it turns into um, so it's it's quite a fascinating experience to hand someone their their first bar of chocolate when they've been a cocoa farmer for 50 years and they had no idea um, you know where their product ended up um it's yeah it's it's been a very rewarding experience sometimes but also quite a scary one thinking that this person who slogs away for nine ten hours a day in a field has has no concept of the enjoyment that we receive from from their product and the reason that they don't understand that level of enjoyment is because they are they are barely above the poverty line they are scraping by they are not receiving the same value um, from a from a product such as cocoa um, that that we derive from the pleasure of eating it. Um, so I think I'll, I'll sort of echo a little bit what Lindsay said is that no supply chain is the same. Every supply chain is different, and that that is an extremely complicating factor uh, in this in this um, sphere when we look at supply chains. Um, Every commodity is different. And then even within commodities, the kind of different layers of importers, exporters, manufacturers, processes, it, it can be different within the same company for, for different lines or for, for different commodities. I mean, even if you take what should be a relatively straightforward product like bananas, which are grown, shipped and consumed as, as they are, um, they can still often kind of go through five or six different um, different people, different actors, different organisations. Mm. Um, and the more levels you have, obviously, the more value needs to be derived from each of those actors, um, which unfortunately often means that the value that the producer, the farmer receives or the worker receives from the price that we pay as, as a consumer gets less and less Um there's some pretty shocking statistics out of the US that if a cup of coffee costs a consumer $2.80, um, seven cents of that is paid to the coffee farmer. Um, so you can just see how 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 these value chains strip out mm. money along the way. And then actually the, the producer at the end, who whom without we would not have that cup of coffee, um, receives such a low percentage. And, and Katie, how, how do fair trade then work uh, through that quite complex vertical 
the, are you working directly with the workers? Are you working with all the intermediaries as well? We obviously know it turns up in our many of our grocery stores as, as labelling. How, where's your relationship? So fair trade, um, the fair trade model works um, with cooperatives or with plantations um, or with with large scale farms. So the, that first step is about organising farmers and workers. Um, and that's them organising themselves into democratic bodies, um, which means that they have kind of more uh, more bargaining power. They are able to pool and share resources. So they they work as a cooperative. And um, that cooperative is is fair trade certified, which means they need to kind of meet the farmers and workers need to meet um, certain requirements around environmental protection, about safeguarding, um, also around financial due diligence to make sure that their their businesses are viable. Um, we then work with every actor then along the supply chain until the final retailers. Um, to ensure that, again, that the intermediaries, the suppliers, the processors, the manufacturers are also fair trade certified um, and then the end retailers as well. So that's that's how uh, if, if you see a product with a fair trade mark, you know that it's come from a fair trade certified farm and it's gone through fair trade certified actors at every step along the way. Great. Great. And you've, you've touched on an issue that, that, that you know, is clearly remains at large which is about pay and about fair pay um i'm just wondering how we can move on to what a good looks like in a supply chain and i know that obviously different programs and in case you know for everyone listening you know we're talking about two different examples here of supply chain quite intentionally so lindsay's obviously talking about from the garment industry and katie's referencing a lot from the produce the food we eat um which is gonna you know, which is great because we cover more variety of supply chain so so perhaps Katie you can continue you know obviously Fairtrade got quite a clear point of view on what good should look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah I think I think for us the the starting point is is thinking about uh, thinking about farmers and workers as as businesses they are they are business people um, and it's very easy for us to be able to relate to a situation of um, feeling disempowered or, or uneducated so really what fair trade is about is providing that empowerment and that education for producers, um, for farmers and for workers um, so that they feel connected and they, they feel value in the supply chain. Um, time and time again, we've come across, you know, situations where farmers and workers don't have enough income to cover their basic necessities. So if they don't have enough income to cover their basic necessities, how how are they going to be able to invest in their futures and how are they going to be able to sell farming um, to the next generation? We're seeing, you know, real drop off in the number of, of young people wanting to enter into farming in, in places like West Africa and Latin America. Um, there's just far more viable um, there's far more viable alternatives in uh, in in urban areas, so yeah. we're we're fast approaching a point where where we won't have farmers willing to farm cocoa and bananas and coffee, um, uh, and so I think it's really about it's about the education and the empowerment of those farmers to to think that farming is is viable for the future, and that that's what good will look like. Good will look like us still sitting here in. 10 years time being able to to consume those products because 
farming is is a you know a, a viable career which at the moment for the majority of, of farmers and workers it, it's not mm. they're doing it because they don't see an alternative um, but that's not a good enough reason to keep someone in a job um, it, it has to be worth their while the yeah. majority of them farm below the cost of their production so they're they're making a loss every time they go out every day they go out into the field they're they're making a loss yeah. so i mean i'm sure we could all kind of empathize with how demotivating that must be yeah. um to, to get up every day and know that you you can't feed your children you can't send them to school um yeah it's it's and it's it <laughs> we need to as a society kind of understand that that's in a way that's the the cost of of, of that's the cost of the choices that we're making at the moment yeah. and lindsay to that point around you know, what constitutes a you know a wage which is fair and what constitutes a wage which is decent and and all those things that katie explained that you know if you can't actually pay for life or if you can't pay if there's no sense in even doing the job really you're almost going backwards just wondering how you approach that um, and, and and what the aspiration would be in that space. Yeah, so I mean, at Primark and again with most high street retailers, you'll find that we have a code of conduct. So the code of conduct is kind of embedded in the Declaration of Human Rights. It's aligned to things like the International Labour Organization, fundamental um, principles, <clears throat> fundamental rights and principles at work or something like that. Um, so there's kind of a general code of conduct which will lay out basically what we think good looks like in terms of human rights due diligence in the supply chain um, and wages forms part of that and there's lots of issues around wages so first of all is compliance with minimum wages but then there are also lots of issues around say kind of maternity pay benefits and access to social insurance and all the kind of things that come around the actual wage that you earn so all of that falls under our kind of due diligence program and we have a monitoring program to make sure that those minimum standards are kept within our supply chain but as you say there's a bigger conversation a bigger issue which is um you could kind of uh frame by the living wage discussion um and this is impacting many sectors and many countries including the uk you know saying that minimum wages do not reflect living wages that minimum wages are actually in many circumstances poverty wages exactly like katie's described um, and the governments who set minimum wages really do so in order to kind of keep economies competitive rather than to actually think about the needs of workers and what constitutes, you know, a, 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 an amount that you can actually live on. Um, and that is also actually the right to earn a living wage is also enshrined in the Declaration of Human Rights. So um, there is a very live discussion going on in our company and in many other companies about how can we move towards you know, the payment of a living wage in the supply chain. And it is complicated by the fact, I said at the beginning, they're not our employees. So it's not as simple. I mean, hear it so many times. Oh, if we paid 5p more for a t-shirt, we could pay workers a living wage. Well, in theory, yes. But what will happen is the factory will just take 10p more for that t-shirt um, and put it into their pocket as profit. Now, that's that's not to say that we shouldn't do it. But it is more complicated because exactly like Katie says of the complexities of the supply chain and so so we're kind of currently working out our approach of, of how we do that but it yeah. is about yeah. kind of sharing that value in mm. the supply chain so really important distinction for everyone to understand is the difference between a minimum wage and a living wage and that you know people are clear that minimum wage is basically 
compliant regulatory you have to do that to be legal doesn't mean that that's a way someone can really live off and uh, i know i've heard lindsay speaking before you know in lovely terms about just simply having enough money to pay for a family and maybe save a bit at the end of the month is what would really be seems like a good fair living wage for people to live on and i think people up in the uk would feel the same way um that that complexity um katie is that is that experienced by fair trade too you agree with someone that it should be a fair wage but how do you guarantee the person in the workforce receives that in, in the monthly pay packet yeah it's 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 um it's really hard and it's it's also hard in the, the context of fair trade we have as i mentioned cooperatives which are fair trade certified um but they are able to sell their produce or their output on the conventional market as well as the fair trade market and we we're, we're often in situations where um well the majority of our cooperatives don't sell 100 percent of their produce on fair trade terms um, therefore, they will. <laughs> with fair trade, there's a minimum price and there's, there's a premium, but that is only applicable to the percentage that they're selling on fair trade terms. So, if we have a cooperative that's selling 30% on fair trade terms, um, yes, they're the cooperative and the, the members are better off by 30%, but that's that's not getting you to 100%. Yeah. Um, so, we have set a, a living living income in cocoa, so it's sl slightly different to living wage, but it. Uh, that follows the same principles um, but it, but unless those farmers are selling 100 percent of their of their product as fair trade then they're not going to reach that living income so it's not it's not about one actor being able to change this it's not about one company having a solution as as Lindsay said you know they're working with with factories who will have multiple buyers so yeah. Again, Lindsay is probably in the same situation that we are. If if we want to see real change for these farmers and workers, then everyone has to come to together to agree um, on a common consensus. And we we see time and time again, like companies even in the UK are, are at such different sort of places on their on their sustainability journeys. Some are some are leaders, and some are just are just beginning. So we we have to. We have to help navigate that kind of movement along the journey so that eventually um, collective action is is possible. But it's yeah, yeah. No, no one person is, is going to solve this or no one actor is going to solve this. So moving as one uh, in terms of the, uh, the buyer side is really critical for actual change to happen uh, for everyone else at the, the, at the very end of that supply chain. Uh, as you as you're explaining that, you know, if I'm buying from a factory in, only 50% of the income of that factory is fair trade then or, or living wage then the workers of the month in the month don't get that living wage um and and tell me your approach so, so those workers how do they get their voice heard and I, I know that obviously there's different ways of getting representation through um fair trade have got quite a dynamic setup for this haven't you yeah, so we we require um, farmers, as I said, farmers and workers both to be organised. Um, so in a cooperative setting, um, uh, the the cooperative um, leadership needs to be democratically elected. They need to hold annual general meetings so that when they receive their additional fair trade premium, um, how that money is spent is is democratically decided by the producer organisations. And the same in worker situations. So if a if a farm, a large scale farm wants to be fair trade certified, they have to allow the workers to form a worker committee to to get their voice heard 
um, and and also for um, yeah for democratic decision making again to occur um, for the use of the fair trade premium. Um, we also have producer networks, so we have producer representation across all three of the producing continents. Um, and they are fair trade kind of boots on the ground who ensure that any, how do I put it, any, the easiest way to describe them is programs, any interventions which are, which are aimed at the producers are producer built um, and they, they have the producer voice reflected in them so that companies we know we have we have situations that goes back to kind of colonial times where where Western worlds feel like we can we can impart our knowledge onto onto farmers and workers and that, that we know best sitting here in London. We can tell a farmer, oh, yeah. this is what you should be doing to your farm. Um, and it's just simply not the case. So we need to we need to listen. We need to hear what the specific challenges are that they're facing in country context. Um, and we need to work with those farmers to to create solutions, to create programs, to create interventions which actually get to the heart of their issues right. and allow them to kind of continue farming sustainably and viably. Because sitting sitting here in London and dictating, I don't know, I don't know, Ghanese people, you should um, you should start pruning in January your cocoa bushes just isn't going to cut it you know that's that's not the way to empower people it's not the way to see a re real change so that that's how fair trade works we work to ensure that those those people are represented and their voices heard absolutely and and lindsay that local context um is that is that relevant as well the way primark affects the supply chain and how do we bring yeah. that through yeah i mean i think that that worker representation and voice is very very important um and we have kind of formal and informal mechanisms and it's important that for us so that we understand like katie says we understand workers experience of of work through their own words and their own experiences but also that workers have mechanisms and ways to raise grievances if they have problems and um, that they they have channels to do so so we use various um there'll be different channels where the trade union representation committees in workplaces and then also a lots of the work that i do is around kind of working with local partners who can really engage and build trust like trusted dialogue with workers to really understand what's going on um, and particularly in this area i wanted to call out for example women and migrant workers and those vulnerable workers so really important you know you might have i, I remember speaking to my team in bangladesh where we run projects to support factories to set up committees, worker committees, they're required by law, fantastic, brilliant training programme. They specifically train some of the women workers, you know, give them an extra three days training. And I remember my project manager who is uh, Bangladeshi saying to me, oh, you know, the women are so lively in the training. Oh, because I'd seen like an output from the training of all the complaints the women had raised. And it was really like not not good, but great that they'd spoken out and all these things that were happening to them. And nothing super serious but like really impacting their work and my manager was like but the, the women will never ever raise this in a committee she was and she was she was like no I mean and to your point Katie you know that that cultural thing she was like oh no they're in the training now they're yeah, really lively but like no you know and it was almost like she was saying well this is your your project around committees and you think that you'll empower these women but they're never going to really say anything so it, that that local 
that local context, that no local knowledge on the ground. And because we have a team in Bangladesh, I was kind of like, okay, well, look, this is a solution I'd like you to help me come up with. You know, what should we do? What can we expect? How can we push this forward? And, and it's very hard. You can't, you can't suddenly leapfrog, you know, culture and tradition and societal norms, but you can be on the forefront. You can be in the right place. And so that really, really re requires, you know, local context. You, you, you know, um, uh, we have it a lot in India. There are issues around freedom of movement where, um, you know, in our code of conduct and one of the indicators of forced labor, according to the ILO, is restriction on freedom of movement. But you have workers in hostels um, in India, particularly quite young women who've come from rural areas coming into a factory, staying at the hostel and they've given curfews. Their parents want their curfew, you know, want them to have curfews. The parents see a good hostel as one which is very strict. Um, and in that culture, if, you know, an unmarried female is seen even talking to, to a boy, you know, to a man, it can ruin her entire prospects. Now, whether right or wrong, that's the situation. So we speak to factory management and they're like, you and all the brands are telling me these workers should be able to come and, come and go as they please and I'm locking them up. But I've got, you know culturally I have to and again it's not about right or wrong it's having the teams on the ground and being able to have the conversations and frame things and be able to say this is how we understand the risks but you know we understanding both points of view so it's what makes the job fascinating but it, it it's never black and white I always say that I just live in the grey and yep, things that yep. you think are quite black and white oh that's a human right that's not there's so much grey it's amazing yeah well that's so important because when we Often our task is to try and communicate and face questions and it, that everyone wants to be simple answers yeah. and clarity. And of course, there isn't clarity, there's nuance. So we've spoken about that financial resilience. We've spoken about the importance of safety and also confidence in the system to protect themselves. That gives an opportunity to representation and gathering and form, you know, be able to be safe to have their their voice heard. We, we haven't discussed in detail, but, I, you know, partly taking as given about the very basis of safety, that they have to be in environments that physically are safe for them, both from the workplace itself, but also from, you know, people they work with. Um, we've touched on you in the last few minutes, we've touched a bit, of, um, quite a bit about the issues faced in the women in the supply chain. And I just wonder we would talk about just a bit further in the context of this year as well. Um, you know, we know that the the, the pandemic's having a huge impact, of course, and just beginning really to be felt in terms of the economic impact. And we know that that seems to be disproportionately landing on the, the, the female workforce within supply chains. Is that is that true to say around the world? And is there, are there issues that we're not unaware of that is, that is happening more to women now as a consequence of the increased strain on the trading system? So um, a few things here and a, a bit, Loathe to, you know, I don't, I don't fully know the impacts. I don't fully understand the impacts. So, with that caveat, um, I think what we've, what we generally have seen is that COVID has amplified all the risks that were already there. Um, some of, so it's really brought us, brought out issues around vulnerability and lack of resilience. Um, and, and with women, I think two of the issues I'll call out, which we're trying to do more, which have definitely been exacerbated by COVID. One is around kind of gender-based violence and. When I was reflecting just before this about has there been progress, um, this is something that no one was really talking about even say five years ago, gender-based violence in the, in the garment sector globally, in factories and in the supply chain. And it's definitely now on the agenda and we're unpacking it, understanding how difficult it is 
to address it and start like I, I wouldn't say there's huge progress but compared to before when it wasn't even talked about or acknowledged I think there has been progress so gender-based violence is a really big issue for us in the garment sector and then the other one is the burden of unpaid care work which I think you know COVID has really in a way helped helpfully amplified I think everyone has now got much more hands-on experience of exactly what that looks like and before COVID, we'd actually done some research with the UK government looking at the, it was called the double day and found that um, sample of Bangladeshi female workers were doing seven hours additional work um, around care. And it's not every old childcare, it's not just childcare, care of the elderly, care of the sick, um, going to the market, you know, the shopping, the cooking, et cetera. So I mean, seven hours additional a day. So those are two issues that we're particularly trying to address. And as Katie said earlier, they are absolutely not things we can do alone. You know, so we're really looking at industry wide collaborations and both within the sector and beyond. Sure. And Katie? Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add, I, I completely agree with both those two points, is that in the majority of agricultural supply chains in, in a lot of countries, women, women aren't allowed to own land. So if a, if a female is, is working, if a woman is working, they are working on their husband or their family land. Um, and there is very little mechanisms to allow them to be paid for that work. So the majority of work that women do is, is completely unpaid. Um, and um, the kind of the, the negative of, of COVID, I suppose, in this situation is, is about bringing people together to unpick why that is going to be detrimental to industries in the future because women are working and they are willing to work um, but they cannot continue to work uh, and, and and not be paid for it yeah um so we 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 have a lot of programs that are actually specifically targeting men um uh, because what what we found is that the women are are confident but like Lindsay said, they aren't confident to speak out against against the, the men in their society. Um, so we're actually working very closely with men to uh, to get them to understand the benefits of signing over a piece of their land to their to their wives, for example, um, and for for men to understand the value of, of female work um, and for we have so much anecdotal evidence of, of when you put the when you put a farmer's wages or income in the in the hands of a in the hands of a woman it goes twice as far as when you put it in the hands of a man um but yeah covid as as lindsay said has just has just exacerbated problems that were already yeah, existing great thank you both um on a more positive note just wondering whether you feel that supply chains have got better. You know, do we think that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we are in a better place today? Or is, has there been no change or has it even got worse? Um, I'll go you first, Katie. I, I, think, I think there have been, I think there have been a lot of positive improvements. And I think there have been a lot, there's been a lot of realization in the last say 10, 15 years, the, the, the dialogue of business has changed. The dialogue has, has started to introduce people into the, into the, into the profit question. Um, we're, we're probably not as far along as, as we would like to see um, in terms of 
uh, yeah, in terms of bringing livelihoods into into company P&Ls, but um, we're we're slowly getting there. You know, people, profit, planet wasn't a phrase 10, 15 years ago. It was a phrase used by very few, uh, and it is it's a more common business um, term that we hear now. And I think there are definitely been front runners in in in, in business, um, but we're now the kind of mass market is now catching up, which which is great to see. Yeah. Um, but poverty still exists. So can I say that they're fairer? Yes, maybe, but the, the root cause is, is still there, unfortunately. Farmers are still extremely poor. And now they're faced with climate change as well, which is just a, this is a bad phrase, but it's a kick in the teeth. It's, mm. it's, it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> These are the people that have contributed least to climate change, least to global emissions. And yet, uh, you know, last year we saw there was Storm Etta in, um, uh, that hit across um, Latin America. And in some places in Honduras, they saw 70% of their crops being destroyed. And that's that's through no fault of their own farming practices. There's nothing they could have done to prevent that. But to, for your year's income to suddenly drop by 70% is 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 a, a shock too too great for a lot of people to manage. So yes, there there is definitely pockets where where supply chains are getting fairer. However, the obstacles are are still mounting up in 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 the face of, of a lot of farmers. Yeah, and Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I do agree, and it's it's very it makes me reflect hearing that. I, a few things which I, where I think we're on the right path, if you like. Um, so th there's a lot um, very interesting debate around audits and have social audits in the supply chain actually achieved everything. Very controversial, not to be discussed now in detail. But I would say overall, in my perspective, they are probably workplaces are probably safer as a result, the kind of EHS type health and safety. But we know that for some issues like trade union representation, freedom of association, haven't really seen improvements in that area. Um, I completely agree issues that weren't on the table are now on the table. I mentioned gender-based violence, that can only be a good thing. Um, companies are talking more about these issues. And I think what also should be flagged is the role of consumers and investors. And I think it's interesting thinking about fair trade and how you know many of the Primark customers now, I think are looking at you know some of those principles in something like fair trade, which is an absolute leader and saying, well, actually you, you know, you other retailers on the high street, what what are you doing? How how does your how do your models compare? And investors are also really driving this conversation and really driving change internally in companies, which is great. And the final point I would say where there's been a real change is around transparency. So the fact that companies now really are being forced to look at their supply chains and map them. So, you know, where does your cotton come from? You know, where do you, where's who's printing your product? All those kind of things. And I think that that can only be a good thing, but it really is just picking up, picking up the stone and having a look. It's it yeah, to Katie's yeah. point, it's not yet addressing the root causes of those issues. But I think there's reason to be optimistic. Um, but final thanks again to our panelists for, for giving out the time and letting us learn from you.